In this episode of Eurocast, we talk to Zinon Koal. He is a former Belgian diplomat, he speaks Ukrainian fluently, and he is very familiar with the current crisis. We asked him about a variety of topics, but some of them were the tactics that various countries have employed uh, during this situation. We talked to him about the response of um, EU countries, for example, and we also talked about the implications for the future. And as a final little question, we asked him exactly what he believes Putin's motives are. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Eurocast. We are your hosts, Julian Kratzer and Luke Cogutini. And today we have Zinon Kowal to talk about the current crisis in Ukraine. So um, just briefly introduce yourself. Well, I'm a former Belgian dipl- diplomat. I was uh, representing the French-speaking governments of Belgium, because Belgium is a federation, as you probably know. And I've been posted uh, in notably if, uh, in Warsaw, Prague, Hanoi, Tunis, Paris, where I ended my career. I was working with UNESCO and the OECD in Paris. But I've also been working with the Ukrainian embassy because I'm, I am of Ukrainian origin, but born in Brussels. And I speak fluently Ukrainian. And when uh, Ukraine opened its uh, first embassy in Brussels in 92, uh, I was uh, uh, lent by the French-speaking governments of Belgium to help Ukraine establish and open uh, the embassy in Brussels, because the embassy was uh, with a very small group of diplomats who didn't know much about the federal structure of Belgium. Mm-hmm. And they also were accredited to the Netherlands, and nobody speaks Dutch. They were also credited to Luxembourg, but also to NATO and the EC and had five diplomats. So it was a very difficult task. So Mm -hmm. that's about me. Okay, Okay, and um, this is exactly why we want to talk to you today, uh, because you have this expertise in uh, Ukraine. Uh, Most recently, the television tower, of course, in uh, Kiev um, was hit. hit. Uh, We are recording this on the 1st of March. Um, so let's get right into the questions. Um, residents of Kiev started joining the fight, uh, being told uh, by the defense ministry how to make Molotov cocktails, and many yes. residents of Ukraine were also given machine guns. Um, yes. Do you think this civilian effort has a chance? Of course. I mean, people in Ukraine are fighting to defend their own soil, their own houses, their own families, their own territory. The Russians coming into Ukraine are just invaders and they don't really know uh, for most of them what they are doing in Ukraine. Some of them who were captured said, well, we thought we were doing maneuvers. We didn't know where we were. Mm -hmm. And they're young conscripts, not very familiar with war. So the first uh, uh, wave of soldiers sent to Ukraine, as it appears, were not fantastic soldiers or warriors. I think that the second wave that will be sent might be much uh, heavier with Mm. uh, professionals, with the guys working for Wagner, you heard probably of that. So Mm. it will not be easy because um, as you know, uh, around Ukraine, you had uh, a gathering of close to 200,000 troops. So it's... uh, a lot. 
Of, of course. I mean, uh, you've often heard this first wave described as cannon, cannon fodder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And their fighting spirit is not high. I mean, mm-hmm. because oh, who, who wants to die? I mean, they thought that they would do a blitzkrieg with Ukrainian people welcoming them, them to Ukraine, you know, and say, oh, how good you help us to prevent, uh, I mean, to protect us from genocide. What kind of genocide? You know, that was the uh, speech of uh, Putin, who was speaking of genocide in the Donbass. What kind of genocide? Come on. Mm. And obviously there's uh, paramilitary groups now. Do you think they have a chance? Paramilitary from Ukraine or from Russia? Yes, from Ukraine. From Ukraine, yeah. From Ukraine. I mean, everybody is defending, right? So uh, where the regular army cannot do it or isn't present, people will defend themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) whatever they, they have, the guns... Molotov cocktails, you know, uh, mm. they will do it. They don't have any other choice mm. or flee. Mm. And now we've yeah. kind of talked about the military tactics. Now let's move on to the information war, as some people are calling it. Uh, the US, uh, throughout this crisis, has made the decision to declassify and release um, all information gathered on how the crisis was developing. Do you think this is uh, an effective a strategy to deter invasion or not? Well, you know, it's like the policeman and the thief. When the policeman says to the thief, oh, we know you're gonna try to burgle that house or that jewelry on that day, on that precise hour, he will not do it. Mm. He would be stupid to do it because he would be caught. Yes. So it was really a, a deterrent, right? To mm-hmm. prevent some actions to happen. So it was effective to, up to some point, but we know that uh, Putin, I always want to say Stalin, but Putin was <laughs> in China and uh, the president of China asked him not to start a war before mm-hmm. the end of the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. So that's what happened. He waited till the end of the Winter Olympics and then he struck. Mm. Yeah. But, because, you know, when you have close to 200 troops uh, uh, along the, the frontiers, right? They're not there to, to do tourism, right? Yeah, yes. And their morale, the longer they stay, becomes lower and lower. Yes. Because they, they don't sleep properly, they don't have proper food, etc., etc. So they, you, you have to use them to let them do something. Yes. And eventually he did it. Yeah. Okay, now on to the response. So here in Germany, we have people that, call themselves Putin Feshtea, um, which translated as um, Putin understanders. Um, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, so yeah. do you think Putin's current actions will finally change these people's minds? Well, you saw the reaction of the German government, mm-hmm. of the chancellor, what he announced. I mean, uh, it's a never heard story in Germany until today. So for the armament budget, you know, for the defense, etc., you know, people were shocked. And you heard the answer of uh, Putin, who said, well, uh, the denazification was not strong enough in Germany. You see what they're doing now? That was the answer of Putin. So Putin puts himself in a situation where everybody stands against him. 
because even his previous was... allies, for example, Viktor Orban, uh, was recently quoted to have said, uh, Hungary made clear that we support all the sanctions. So even his previous allies are trying to distance themselves from him. Do you think this will, pattern will continue? If he continues to do what he's doing, definitely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was lying bluntly to Macron, to everybody, you know, people were asking that, but you're, you're not going to go to war, are you? They said, no, all the ambassadors, said, no, 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 we're just making maneuvers. How can you trust a country that lies looking at a young diplomat, Russian diplomat, one day, uh, we, we had a very unpleasant discussion. And uh, at the end, he told me, but why do people hate us? So the question is already intriguing. Eh? Why would a diplomat ask you such, such a question? So it means that he felt something was not right. And you know what my answer was? I told him, but what do you do for people to love you or to like you? When do you propose that? Yeah, of course. And he couldn't answer. He was so embarrassed. You know, he said, oh. He was there standing speechless. I mean, specifically for this crisis, how long do you think it will take for Russia to repair its relations? Oh, that will take generations. Mm -hmm. Because first, how, uh, we don't know how long this war will uh, carry on, right? Ukraine is fighting the second most powerful army in the world, right? And so far, Ukraine is fighting alone. Yeah. We, Ukraine is really uh, pleased. The underdog. The solidarity, you know, mm. the, the arms that flow in, in Ukraine. But it was <laughs> maybe not, not enough. Mm -hmm. And very late when people, mm. I mean, the international community realized what really was happening. Because everybody thought that you could negotiate with Putin. Putin and his regime only know the language of force, of power. Mm -hmm. They frighten people. And that's how they want to gain respect. But respect, you don't get it by frightening people. Respect, you deserve it with positive acts that adds a, a positive behavior, things that you do for your neighbors or for the humanity, not by frightening them. Yeah, the thief in your previous example does not gain respect. No, they don't play by the rules. Mm -hmm. And even destroying the telecommunication tower in, in Kiev. So they're trying to suppress the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, of information. It's mm. not a military object. They're killing people right now. They destroyed the uh, regional administration of Kharkiv. That's not a military object. Mm. It's civil, a civil administration. And when they struck a military building, they claimed that these were uh, simply Ukrainian uh, rockets, which is just laughable. Yeah. You know, they turn around all the arguments that you mm -hmm. could use against them. Yeah. Okay, Jay? Yeah, so obviously it's, it's kind of tricky because the NATO can't really do much as Ukraine is not a member. 
So would it mm-hmm. would it take a westward expansion for the NATO to get involved, or is there anything the NATO can do right now? Maybe not NATO as such. They can uh, go along with the sanctions that uh, are taken all around, but uh, the members of NATO can do a lot separately. Mm-hmm. And you see that uh, quite a lot of members of NATO are helping Ukraine with uh, weapons. You know that uh, countries like Poland, Romania, and Bulgaria just uh, gave 70 airplanes to help Ukraine cover the, the deficit you know, in the airs. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's quite impressive, right? And the Stingers and the Javelins, the United States are also members of NATO. All the, the multi- multilateral organizations that we know, like uh, United Nations, like the EU, like NATO, they have to reach a consensus. And when you have a vast number of members, <laughs> the consensus that you reach is not very high. It's always mm-hmm. the minimum that you can get. Some members would like to go further, but they cannot do it because the consensus is where it is, where it stands, because it's not easy to get a consensus. But mm-hmm. on a bilateral level, if they work, you know, B2B, as we say, they can do much more. And some do. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned these sanctions. And of course, um, there have also been um, bans on some Russian banks on SWIFT and blocking uh, Moscow's uh, foreign currency reserves. Uh, Do you think these uh, economic punishments, let's call them, are effective or not? Uh, They are effective, but not from from day to day. Mm -hmm. On a longer term, yes, they they hit. You know, and they also create uh, in the surrounding of Putin uh, a big, uh, you know, uncertainty. Because the oligarchs that are surrounding uh, Putin, they're hit, they're targeted, and they're suffering for, from that too. So in the end, they might say, but maybe the Putin's politics are not so good because we are hit by what he does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if uh, the situation carries on like that for quite a time, and if Ukraine is still resisting for a longer period of time, I think that Putin will will lose uh, some of his support within Russia. Mm. Imagine uh, all the uh, bodies of dead Russian soldiers coming back to Russia. Do you think the Russian families will be pleased to see their dead bodies coming back? They don't speak about that in Russia. And the deputy prime minister of Ukraine has asked the Red Cross to bring back these bodies, the bodies of the dead Russian soldiers, back to Russia. So that's one thing. Uh, You know that the the youth in Russia is the one that tries to read internet because they don't believe the official television channels and so on. So they also, I mean, the, the ones who demonstrated in Russia are mainly youngsters or people that have an opinion, a different opinion, people from the academic world, professors, etc., people who are aware of what is going on. So this is also a second point. Third point, the surrounding, the people surrounding uh, Putin. So also they are 
threatened by what's, what's happening. So you have several uh, levels of uh, in French, we say mécontentement, uh, could you say oh, dissatisfaction mm -hmm. that will amplify with time against uh, Putin's policy. Starting from the soldiers way up to the oligarchs in Russia. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the families, you know, because the families don't, don't want to see their son killed for what kind of war? They yeah. have always been told that Russia and Ukraine are brotherly nations, but they're not. How can you annex a part of the territory of a brotherly nation like they did in Crimea? Why are you invading and fomenting? I don't know if that word exists in, exists in English, fomenter in French. Why are you fomenting a secession in the eastern part of the country? If the Russians wouldn't have done it, there would never have been a war mm -hmm. in the eastern part of Ukraine. Okay, there were problems, but these problems can be discussed within a democratic society. Mm -hmm in the parliament and not by creating uh, you know puppet governments then recognizing these puppet governments and then asking them to ask them to help you to help them and invading the country this is a usual tactic yeah. they, they did that with afghanistan when they invaded afghanistan they created a puppet government was, uh, you know, uh, supporting Russia or the Soviet Union. And they said, that puppet government said, help us, we need your help because we are threatened by whoever. And that's how the Soviet, the Soviet Union became, you know, uh, started the invasion of Afghanistan and the war in Afghanistan. It's exactly the same scenario with Ukraine, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn from history. You have, we have to be aware of how they do things. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, um, let's talk about some implications for the future. Uh, yes. So Emmanuel Macron, obviously the president of France, he has been a big supporter of the European army for many years now. Do you think this current crisis kind of justifies that way of thinking or would this just have bad consequences? I think that more and more the Europeans are aware that they have to be more concerned about their own defense. You know, we missed in Europe the opportunity to create a def defense community in 1954, mainly because of France, because the goal was against uh, uh, the, the fact that he would lose some sovereignty. And on the other side, the communists were supporting the Soviet Union and didn't want to have a European defense. So the party of the goal and the communists were together to vote against it. And so that's how, and that's why today we don't have a European com defense community. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've but, heard some people say that uh, the creation of a European army will just create more unrest by further isolating Russia. Do you think this is an argument worth taking into account? Well, that's the argument that Russia does mm. or uses. You know, uh, we are try always trying to understand Russia and to take for granted their arguments or the, the, the things they tell us. 
but we know we are not an aggressor. We will never invade Russia. Do you think that NATO is planning to, inv to, to invade Russia or to make a strike on Russia? No. Why did NATO expand? expand? Because countries were asking the protection of NATO because they felt they were threatened by Russia. It's not NATO that told these countries, come on and join us. Let's be bigger and stronger. No, it was the contrary. Russia's behavior and Russia's politics made more and more countries want to become members of a defensive alliance mm. because they were feeling they're more secure. Look at Sweden and Finland today. They're also asking to join NATO. Yes. Do yeah. you think that Ukraine would have uh, an invasion if uh, it, it had been a member of NATO? No. What happened to Georgia in 2008? They were invaded. They were hit. Yes. Um, so we're now going to try to move on to the final questions. We know that you are very busy. Um, so we're going to try to get your take on a very important issue, which is kind of in the minds of everyone at the moment. What are the true motives behind Putin's military expansion? You have several motives. It's never one motive. First of all, and you heard it, he told it at the Munich conference, I don't know which year, 2006, I guess, but I'm not sure exactly. He said that the biggest tra uh, tragedy of the 20th century was the, uh, that the Soviet Union fell apart, mm -hmm. dislocated, right? Second thing he said, uh, he said that Ukraine is not a state. Ukraine is not a nation. The government in Ukraine are putschists, neo-Nazis, and drug addicts. That's what he said. And why did he say that? Because this is pure defamation, right, against Ukraine. Uh, he cannot stand to have a country that be, was part of the former Soviet Union at his border and that can show that democracy, the rule of law, and an open society can bring development to a country, can raise the level of aware awareness, the riches of the people, etc., and become successful as a country. Mm. Because that's not what they're doing in Russia. The Russian plutocrats, oligarchs, are making money, but you don't see any redistribution for, I mean, the people who are not members of that elite. So it was a very difficult uh, neighborhood for Russia to have a country that was showing a completely different behavior, a country that was open to Europe, that was open to NATO because they knew the menace uh, with Russia. And the third element is, as I told you, okay, um, Putin doesn't recognize Ukraine as a state uh, because there is also a very big historic argument. Mm. Uh, 
it would take a long time to explain explain you the history of the <laughs> relations between Kiev and, and Moscow, right? But when uh, the principality of uh, you say principauté, principality, or I don't oh, know. Oh, oh, yeah, I think so. The, I think yeah. The country where you have a king is a kingdom. The country mm -hmm. where you have a prince is what? A principality? <laughs> I don't know. I, I believe, yes. Okay. But there was a prince in Kiev. And Kiev was very powerful as a country called Rus, not Russia. Rus, between 865 and 1240, time where the Mongols and the Tatars invaded Ukraine, invaded Kiev and ruined it, right? But Kiev was in a very powerful country, the biggest country in Europe. And the Prince of Kiev married several of his daughters to very famous uh, uh, kings in Europe, in Germany, in, uh, in Scandinavia, in the UK, in France even. You know, there was Anne de Kiev, was uh, the wife of Hen Henry I of France. So very many, you know, uh, relations between Kiev and the Rus of Kiev and the rest of Europe. Moscow didn't exist at that time. Moscow only appears in uh, history in 1147. Mm -hmm. And the name of Moscow is not Russia. The name of Moscow is Moscovy. And it develops with the time, but they are, they pay a tribute to, in money, to the Mongols and to the Tatars. So the model of development of Moscow is rather, comes rather from Asia, mm. while the model of development of KU comes rather from Europe. Mm -hmm. So you have two completely different political systems developing, you know, uh, in history. And uh, uh, at the end of the 17th century, Muscovy, the Grand Duchy of Muscovy, that was his name, changed his name into Russia. Why? Because Rus was a very has a very nice historic, historical background. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, Peter I wanted to be the equal of his pairs in Europe. In the United Kingdom, in France, with very old, old lines of, of, of aristocracy, let's say. And with Cave, then he becomes much more important. And the legacy of Cave is European, is much more interesting. And so the myth that is based on the history of Moscovy, that becomes becomes became Russia, and the three Slavic, the three between brackets, Russian nations, Belar, they say Belarusia, it's Belarus again, Ukraine, they called Malorussia, the small Russians, and the great Russia, the holy Russia, you know, Moscow. That was the dream of the emperors of Moscow, of Muscovy. And, you know, uh, a saying, a Roman saying, vae victis, you know what that means, Victis is in French, malheur à ceux qui sont défaits, malheur aux victimes. So it means that those who, who lose uh, 
uh, are dishonored, okay, have a big problem because they lost. And Ukraine didn't have many periods of real statehood during history. They had the period of Kyiv and uh, the Kyivska Rus, as we call it. They have the Cossack period and they have a brief period uh, between 1918 and 1920. Then they're incorporated in the Soviet Union and they celebrated 30 years of independence last summer mm. or this summer, no, last year, last summer, exactly. But before so, that, but the history of these two countries was incredibly intertwined. It was intertwined, but those who lose wars and who are occupied by others see their history written by the occupants. They don't have the right to write their own history. Now that Ukraine is independent, it writes its own history. And they know where KU comes from. They know that KU was called Rus and that Muscovy, you know, just took away that glorious past of the Rus of KU. And that's also a thing that they don't like because if Ukrainians exist, it means that the myth that is, you know, supporting the history of Russia isn't true. So you can imagine what a change in mentality mm. it would bring in Russia. And Putin doesn't like that because he's a Russian imperialist. And for him, he's uh, continuing the policy of imperialism of the Tsars and also, he is in some way continuing what the Soviet Union did by assimilating or trying to assimilate all the 15 republics under one uh, frame, calling the people from the Soviet Union Homo Sovieticus, the Soviet man. And the Soviet man has to have a Soviet mind speak Russian and forget about his own roots or identity. So and do you think he's what? nostalgic about the Soviet Union? Well, he's not so nostalgic about, the, about communism because mm. it didn't work. Yeah. But he's nostalgic about power. He's nostalgic about you know, the strength and the role that so the Soviet Union had, the place the Soviet Union had in the world. Yes, and the, the strength and the power of the Tsars. Of course, because often these days, when you think about world superpowers, you think about the European Union, China, and the US, but yes. Russia doesn't come to mind immediately. Does he, is he wanting, does he want to almost restore this in the minds of... Of course. You know that when we were speaking about Soviet unions, about Soviet Union, when it existed, nobody... Well, people very often traded the name Soviet Union and Russia. Mm -hmm. For them, it was the same. But in the Soviet Union, you had 15 republics. Ukraine was one of them with 45 million people. So it's not only Russia. And when the Soviet football team, for example, soccer, right, was playing uh, a game and the Belgian TV was translating the game, 
I was very often calling them because they were saying, oh, the Russians are playing well, etc. The Russians are da da da. I said, sorry, but hey, you have 10 players from Dynamo K in that team and they're Ukrainian. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Mm. So I told them, you can say the Soviets, but don't say the Russians. And mm. if you want to be fair, say the Ukrainians are playing very well. Yes. See okay. how they used to work. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read a good book about Ukraine, uh, there's a very good author that writes in English. He's uh, uh, the head of the chair of Ukrainian studies in Harvard. And the book is named The Gates of Europe. Ukraine is the gates of Europe. So the title, The Gates of Europe. The name of the author is Serhi Plokhe, P-L-O-K-H-Y, Serhi Plokhe. Go for it, and you will learn a different side, or you will see a different side of history, because the history of Ukraine that you, you could find nowadays is mainly influenced by the Russian point of view. Mm-hmm. And there you have also the Ukrainian point of view, so you can compare. Mm-hmm. Well, um, thank you so much, uh, Zenon, for coming onto the podcast. It was really great that you uh, uh, accepted our uh, invitation. Um, to the audience, um, I hope you uh, enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something new. Uh, and thank you very much, Zenon. No, I thank you for inviting me. I'm sorry that it was so difficult to find the right slot, but thank God <laughs> it could happen. And we found, and you and me, the right time to do it. So yeah. I wish you lots of, of success for the future, you know, because uh, the future is in your hands. My future is already almost behind me, but I still work and I still believe. I I have strong beliefs. So I'll be working, you know, to promote our common values. Yeah, and thank you you for sharing. Thank you very much for your time and also your great insights. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Goodbye.